0: and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We encourage you to uh, follow us uh, on Twitter, at Disrupt TV Show. Send us your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV and Ray, myself and our distinguished guests will do our best to answer your questions live. It's uh, my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the founder CEO of Constellation Research best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to ZDNet, Harvard Business Review and other media publications. This morning I caught him on Fox Business News live <laughs> and in my humble opinion one of the best futurists to follow on Twitter at @RWANG0. Welcome Ray Wong to Disrupt TV.
1: Hey, thanks a lot, Vala. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Vala Afshar. He's the chief digital evangelist at Salesforce. More importantly, one of the top CIO and CMO followers on Twitter. And more importantly, an author and an awesome Twitter follower. Just follow him and you'll get the latest insights. And more importantly, what is happening and what's hot in terms of the world of transformation. So with that, who do we have? We've got some awesome guests today as we close out um, two more episodes before the end of the year.
0: You do, Ray. And people have described you and I as fast. But we've got, got a guest that's going to put us to shame. Our first guest ran a mile in three minutes, 56 seconds in 2007. Wow. One of the, fast, the fastest guests guest we've had and will ever have on our show. Nick Simmons, the CEO and co-founder of Ron Gum, a functional gum that delivers an energy boost faster than any traditional energy product. He is a five-time middle distance track, 800 meter sweet spot, 1500 meter distance US champion and two-time Olympian uh, in track and field. Uh, Nick is quicker than 99.9% of the population. Uh, And he ran, for example, an 800 meter in 1.42 seconds in 2012. In college, he won seven NCAA titles in outdoor track. He's six times US national 800 meter champion Nick won a silver medal in 800 meters at the 2013 World Championships. And although he specializes being flash, (laughs) (laughs) he also has a bachelor's degree in biochemistry, which I'm sure helped him, you know, inventing this amazing company. Uh, You can follow Nick on Twitter at N-I-C-K-S-Y-M-M-O-N-D-S. Welcome, Nick, to the Shrub
2: TV. Thanks for having me. That was a long intro, man. I appreciate it.
0: <laughs> I tried to be as fast as I could, but I'm kind of in awe of anybody who can run a sub four indoor outdoor, which is just, just re- I can't even comprehend. It
2: took that. me about 15 years to get that fast. You know, it was a <laughs> lot of miles for sure.
0: But you were talking, I mean, how many people, less people have broken a four minute mile than climb Mount Everest? I mean, that's correct. correct? You're in a super, super elite group, so.
2: You know, it was a dream. When I started running at the age of 13, I said, all I want, I mean, I'd love to make the Olympics one day, but I really want to be a sub-four-minute miler. It's this kind of elite crew, and I had, I had done, you know, low fours half a dozen times, and then one day, I went up to the Dempsey Center in University of Washington and cracked a 356. So, oh, it was, uh, it was wow. Wow. That's, that's, my first professional races.
0: Unbelievable.
2: Wow. So how, how, did that
1: get you set for the Olympics? I mean, were you training always for that? Or you just thought, yeah. hey, I want to jump into running?
2: So. Well, I, I had just gotten picked up by Nike when I graduated Willamette University in 2006. Um, I was in Nike's backyard here in Oregon. And so they gave me a small contract and I moved down to Eugene uh, to train with their team. And everything just kind of clicked for me. And I, I went from basically being ranked you know, 50th in the U.S. to being ranked number one in the U.S. in a very short amount of time. And that's uh, ultimately how I made the Olympic team was winning the Olympic trials in 2008.
0: When did you know, at what age did you know that, wow, I'm faster than anyone I meet?
2: (laughs) Well, I I always wanted to be a pro soccer player, a pro hockey player, but when I started high school, I was 90 pounds and the, the varsity coaches looked at me and just said, we can't put you on the field or the ice, you'll get murdered. They said, go out for cross country. No one can hit you out there. And I was the number one man on varsity pretty early on. So, I was just running away from people when I was young, and I, I, I thought um, maybe this could take me somewhere. And, and ultimately, it, it took me to college, and then and on to two Olympic teams.
1: Wow! So how does that Olympic trans like Olympic training transfer to business? Because we hear about you know high high, high caliber sports, uh, high caliber training, um, and business. Uh, what do you see the intersection?
2: I think the two big factors um, are you know the characteristics that make an ex- successful athlete can make an ex- a successful entrepreneur um, you know, tenacity, right. That work ethic, that's mm-hmm. definitely, um, something that both have to have. Um, and then beyond that, it's the ability to deal with an emotional roller coaster. You know, I would have some races where, um, they would be horrible and I'd have to pick myself up and dust myself off because I had another race just days away. Um, and in, with business, it's the same thing. I, 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 always joke that at any given day, I come into run gum HQ here and I'm all convinced that we're going to be millionaires or we're all going to go bankrupt. And that's just the, the, truth of startups. You never know. And you know, one day you're getting news that that's going to change your life. And the other day, you know, you're waiting on POs or uh, you're waiting on, on your receivables to come in. And so you can make payroll. And I, I think I learned to deal with risk and I learned time management skills as an athlete. And I've carried those things on into my life as an entrepreneur.
0: Uh, my guess is since when I walk into Target, I see Ron Gum, your you're going to be a success story. So well, I
2: Target know. was a good one. We went nationwide with Target last month and it kind of puts you on the map. I, I joke that when I won my first um, international race, the pre-classic here in Eugene, it put me on the map as an athlete. And now that RunGum is on store shelves and Target nationwide, it puts RunGum on the map as this cool, hot new brand. And it, it certainly does make things easier.
0: What is your relationship with your coach? I mean, you you both co-founders of RunGum. At what point did you realize that you know, not only I'm benefiting from, you know, having a great coach and trainer and mentor, but this is someone that I could build a great company with.
2: You know, I I recognize Sam LaPrey, who is my business partner and was my coach for 15 years. I recognize some characteristics in him really early on. I met him when I was 18. He was 36 at the time and he had a beautiful house, a beautiful wife, you know, great kids that came out to the track. And I just said, I don't know what this guy's, you know, special recipe is, but I want to learn from him. And so I kind of, you know, shadowed him around the track and, and spent, you know, dinners at his house. And I just said, I got to learn what makes this guy tick. And I think he appreciated some, some, some characteristics in me, um, as a young athlete. And so we worked together to win NCAA titles, to make Olympic teams, to win world medals. And at, at, at a certain point we decided we wanted to get into business as well. And so we've actually, created and sold um, multiple businesses run is our latest endeavor but I think for me um, what's made it such a great dynamic duo um, we ham and egg it and I mean we complement each other very well um, I have some some good characteristics and some fatal flaws and Sam does as well fortunately my flaws offset his and, and vice versa um, so where I'm weak he's strong and, and we've created a lot of great businesses and, and you know as a, as a coach and athlete we're very successful so I think it's important to recognize your limitations right. um, and, and find somebody who counters those limitations.
0: I've been shadowing Ray for several years. He's got a beautiful <laughs> house, beautiful wife, and great <laughs> hey, kids. So I, I do the
2: same.
0: Yeah. <laughs> hey, back
1: back at you guys. Uh, <laughs> so but, uh, but hey, you know, this is an interesting market, right? I mean, you're basically challenging and disrupting a market that is, you know, heavily wasteful lots of bottled stuff um lots of water which is makes shipping like ridiculous right and, and it's a market that's, that's well established right you're, you're, you're in the sports drink market yeah. and you're basically coming at it in a different angle right? absolutely Talk a little bit more about this and uh, well, uh, what's interesting about the disruption that's going on
2: so think about it think about it from the athlete perspective I, and i'm an olympic team and so i have all these energy drinks sending me their company um you know we have to be very careful as athletes what we put in our body because we're constantly tested um, by USADA and WADA, the anti-doping administrations. But one thing that is legal is caffeine and its performance enhancement in, in athletic sports is, is fact, basically. The science behind it is very solid. Um, so I was getting these energy drinks shipped to me and I, I would drink my energy drink and I'd have all this energy and I'd be like, well, I'm going to go crush this workout or crush this race. Um, and I would, but that heavy acidic liquid sloshing around in my stomach it made me very sick. And so a lot of times I'd end up purging my stomach of the contents of you know, the, the liquid. Um, so I, I did study biochemistry at Willamette University. I knew there must be a better way to deliver these stimulants to the system. So much the way that Nicorette, another functional chewing gum, what well, they use chewing gum to deliver nicotine to the system, we use chewing gum to deliver caffeine, taurine and B vitamins to the system. So if that energy blend sounds familiar, you know, it's kind of what Red Bull uses. And I I always loved Red Bull. I just didn't want the sugar and the carbonation and the liquid to go with it. So we infuse chewing gum with that, you know, blend of stimulants. And so you're absorbing them sublingually. It hits you like a train. Um, There's no liquids to freeze. There's no liquids to have TSA confiscated. I could take it into the (laughs) car. It weighs next to nothing. So a marathoner or a cyclist or a mountain climber, that, that really care about weight. They're not going to haul a sixteen ounce energy drink up a mountain with them. But this this weighs you know point one ounce. You can carry it with you anywhere you need to go.
0: That's wow. Did the idea come to you? I mean, what, what it was it
2: was well, it was really born out of necessity. I, I just I knew I wanted these stimulants while I was training to compete around the world, hmm. and I at, at the time I wasn't even creating it for a business. I just said, I need this to compete to be the best on Team USA. And so I, I was experimenting with it. And, and of course, competitors and friends and family are all asking me for the, the energy gum, the, the go gum or what, whatever that we were calling it at the time. And, you know, Sam LaPrey is right there. And he's like, dude, you created something that could be really big. You know, and so we did our research. 300 million Americans use caffeine every single day. And those that do, yeah, I do too. Those that do typically use 300 milligrams in a day. So a cup of coffee is about 100 milligrams, you know, an oh, energy yeah. drinks. There you go. And energy drinks about 100 That's my hand. <laughs> We're plugging and Duncan. And I do and I, I still drink coffee. I love coffee in the mornings. Yeah. But in the afternoon, right, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, yeah. I don't want another cup of coffee. So I, I chew a pack of run gum with 100 milligrams of caffeine, and I'm better for it. I'm sharper as a CEO. You know, going into a meeting or going in to meet with a, a – a venture capitalist, you know, I need to be on top of my game, and this this gives me that energy, that mental clarity that I'm looking for. And then when I get off work at five, the last thing I want to do is go work out, but it's still important to me, so I can have another pack of gum as I'm heading to the gym, and I don't have anything in my stomach sloshing around. So it's a very functional product in that way.
0: Yeah, I saw you. I saw your Target video, and you had a CEO meeting at one o'clock and workout at five o'clock, and I'm sitting there going, I. I I think I'm a customer watching that Target video, so.
2: I'll send you some, man. You got to try it. And that's the other thing, you know, unlike a, we're a dietary supplement, a lot of supplements you take, it takes months to, to feel that benefit, right? If you're trying a new multivitamin or you're trying a dietary supplement of any kind. With Rungum, because you're getting a hundred milligrams pretty much straight away, you feel it quick. It hits you like a train. So I've had days where I'm just in a big slump and I chew a couple pieces of Rungum. I'm like, I'm ready to take on the day.
0: <laughs> Back to running a sub-four mile, that's
2: awesome. I, uh, those days are behind me, but you know, yeah. <laughs> i <I'm> stay <predestated. laughs> Well, hey,
1: what do we do about this other thing though? people are worried about? Caffeine addiction. Yeah. I know you addressed the sugar addiction with this, um, yeah, because you're consuming free, as much sugars. you're sugar-free. Um, what can people do about that? Because we do have people like worried about that as well.
2: You no, know, I get this question so much. I have people that say, Oh, I'm drinking a pot a day of coffee. Like, you know, is this going to work for me? I'm you know, heavily addicted. And I say, One thing that I learned as an athlete, because caffeine has such performance enhancing effects, we would go through what are called caffeine washes, where you don't touch caffeine, any molecule at all from any source for a week. And most people will go through withdrawals. I mean, you'll have headaches and you'll need to drink a lot of water and and it is very challenging, but what you're doing is resetting those, those receptors in your brain so that you can have that affinity for the caffeine molecule again. So I don't necessarily say that people have to go cold turkey for a week, but what they can do is wean themselves off. So, if you're a person drinking a pot of coffee a day, you might be getting seven, eight hundred milligrams a day. You're not getting that same boost from caffeine that you would if you, and I was that guy, right? I was the guy drinking, you know, half a dozen energy drinks a day. I did a caffeine wash and I set myself to a very strict caffeine schedule now. I have a cup of coffee in the morning. I have a pack of run gum at one after lunch and I have one before I go to the gym at 5 PM. That's my 300 milligrams. And again, that's the average consumption by an American, um, you know, and, and also it gets expensive, right? If you're going to Dunkin, if you're going to Starbucks two or three times a day, you're probably spending 10, 15 bucks. Mm-hmm. A pack of run gum is only $1.99. So from a, from a caffeine you know, perspective, we're actually undercutting our competition by about 33%.
1: So you're going after the, You're going after Starbucks and Dunkin' and energy drinks all the way up there.
2: Every one of them. Because we are, as a society, we've decided that caffeine is the stimulant that we're going to run on. And I think it's great because I think it is a very functional molecule, functional chemical. But you got to be careful with how you're going to get it. And I think going sugar-free is a start. And I think utilizing a product that really, you know, dials in the milligram per piece. We're 50 milligrams per piece of run gum. Um, If you get a cup of coffee, that can vary by 100 milligrams, anywhere from 50 to 150 milligrams. So from a functional standpoint for athletes or, or people that are just really trying to watch how much caffeine they consume, you know exactly what you're getting with Run Gun.
0: Sure. I'm going to shift gears a little bit because uh, throughout your career, um, you've you've been vocal in terms of athletes' ability to monetize their sponsorships during their peak years of performance. Absolutely. Such, a, I'll say, massive constraint for collegiate athletes and, and So what are your efforts in terms of like bringing awareness that there's just an unfair or, and it's, I guess I'm expressing my own opinion. There's an imbalance there in terms of athletes being able to monetize during their performance years.
2: So a little, there's a little history about how we got to where we are today Um, in 1978 Congress gave um, through the Ted Stevens Act, gave all of these governing bodies, basically USOC, um, USATF, US gymnastics, you name it, gave them um, the power and, and immunity from antitrust laws to kind of go out and raise funds and, and fund the Olympic movement. From an athlete's perspective, all that money that's coming in through the USOC or coming in through the governing bodies, it really never trickles down to the athletes. There's so many people skimming off the pot that there's not much left for the athletes. So in America, corporations are what really fund the Olympic dream of an athlete. For me, um, when I was coming out of college, it was Nike. And, and then I went on to run for Brooks Running and I had other companies supporting me along the way. I can assure you, I never, ever would have made an Olympic team without corporate support. And I guarantee you pretty much every single Olympian out there could say the same thing. Um, so as a, as a business owner now, I want to give back to that community, right? I want to invest in athletes. But I'm not going to invest in an athlete if I can't tie my brand to that athlete when they're competing. So at the Olympic trials or the Olympic games, for example, because I'm not an official partner, Rungum's not an official partner, we can't, even if we're sponsoring that athlete, if we, even if we're helping them achieve their dreams, we can't be tied to that athlete. So maybe you followed rule 40 during the Olympic games. We can invest money in the athlete, but once the athlete gets to the Super Bowl, they can't even mention our company by name. That's a real problem for the athletes and for the companies that have supported them. Sure, sure. Wow.
1: And, and and this is really tying back to this larger sports industrial complex, right, between Absolutely. the advertisers, advertisers, the brands, and the sports teams, where basically, you know, a- athletes don't really have a choice, right? They're kind of locked in by these governing bodies. They and, are. And the, and the players' unions and different places that they're in. So is there a way to break that? Do people want to break that? Or or what's what's the status?
2: You know, I think there's a couple ways to go about it. Um, You know, one is athlete unions. You know, if you can unite the athletes, they can pretty much demand what they want. Um, We saw it in in baseball back, you know, within the Curt Flood days, we've seen it, um, you know, in in baseball and and basketball. Trying to unite track and field teams is a little bit different, right? Because you've got 120 athletes that come from so many different socioeconomic backgrounds. You might have 300 pound discus thrower that was raised you know on a corn diet in the middle of america next to a 90 pound east african immigrant that's running the marathon and you know they don't necessarily they might not even speak the same language so trying to unite those athletes can be tough um you know there's there's corporate litigation um that RunGum tried we actually uh filed a lawsuit against usoc to allow us to advertise with athletes during the olympic trials and you know we hit a dead end there so we're going to keep, you know, chipping away at it. But I think ultimately what it comes down to is we see, you know, the winter Olympics, for example, um, the Scandinavian countries just cleaning up on medals and everyone says, well, you know, they're just better, better at, at winter sports than we are. That's not true, but they are better funded. Their athletes are, are given funds from their country um, and they have corporate support and they have the lifestyle that allows them to train full time. And until we take better care of our Olympians and give them the resources that they need, we're going to continue to lose medals, and that's not what America wants to see. So I think that that will ultimately the social push to take better care of our athletes will ultimately drive change. And I don't mean to bring up you know this is not tied to finance at all, but U.S. gymnastics is losing their their charter as the governing body because they didn't take care of their athletes. Oh yeah, you know, and that's and that's a you know much much more serious issue. Um and finance, but we, uh, the governing bodies need to wake up and start taking better care of the the, the Olympians and, and Olympic hopefuls.
0: Maybe we get a, a bubble gum format and just the athletes chewing and blowing bubble gum. And <laughs> no,
2: I love it. <laughs> You're going to ruin my announcement of our of our upcoming flavor. Oh, right.
0: <laughs> you know that's going to be you know kind of implicit endorsement by just seeing athletes chewing gum, and everyone's going to know it's your company.
2: Yeah,
0: but, but it, you know advice to other, Startup CEOs, like, what's the one or two things you want to tell, you know, strong, disciplined, ambition entrepreneurs that want to make a difference in the world? Uh, yeah, on you know, the mistakes or lessons learned or some of the aha. You know
2: what? I this will sound this will sound uh, you know, kind of silly, but understand the money, right? If you're an entrepreneur, oh, yeah. you could have the best idea in the entire world, but if you don't understand the money, if you don't understand the cash flow, how to finance your company it's just going to go straight into the ground. Um, and, and we were a self-funded startup, you know, my coach and I, we just said, let's see how far we can take this. And I had to go back and basically learn finance, you know, um, from investopedia and reading books and talking to mentors. Um, cause cause run gum is a, is a fast growing company in order to stay ahead of that movement. You better understand how to finance it. Um, we're raising our first round right now. And, and it was, uh, it was basically throwing the CEO into the deep end and learning how to swim. So if you want to start a business, understand how to finance it. That's the most important lesson I could give a young entrepreneur.
0: Sure. And fortunately, you've got almost 100% year over year growth, so.
2: We have, we've averaged 99% growth since launch year over year. So I, but that, but that, it's a blessing and a curse in some ways because it's hard to keep up with that growth. Right. If you don't have access to capital, you're gonna hit a dead wall, uh, you know, hit a, a dead end and, and a wall. So we are working really hard to, to keep up with manufacturing, keep up with packaging marketing, distribution, and it all takes cash. So that is why we're raising our first round right now. And, and we're, we're successful because when we got, when we got to that point and we hit that cash crunch, I said, I've been in this place before as an athlete, I've been in this place before. And what you do is you talk to mentors, you talk to advisors, you read, you study, you put in 12 hour days when you have to, because it's the people that persevere through those obstacles that will ultimately be successful. That's
1: awesome.
2: Got it. Well, Hey, we are here with former Olympian and CEO and uh,
1: founder and co-founder of run gum, Nick Simmons. So you can catch him on Twitter at N I C K S Y Thank you so much for sharing your insights on disrupting this market and more importantly about your personal career. So thanks a lot for being on the show. Thank you guys.
0: You're terrific. Thanks.
1: Wow. Our first Olympian and fastest guest. Amazing.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I doubt we're going to have a guest uh, that's going to be as fast as Nick on the track, but uh, we do have some amazing, uh, amazing, amazing guests. And our next guest, Anne May Cheng, she's the author of Lean Impact, How to Innovate for Radically Greater Social Good. Anne is the ex- Executive Director of Lean Impact and Lean Startup Company. Previously, Anne was the Chief Innovation Officer at USAID. Prior to her pivot to the public se- sector, Anne was a seasoned Silicon Valley executive with more than 20 years experience at leading companies like, I think you may have heard of these companies, like Google, Apple, (laughs) Instagram, and a range of uh, startups. Uh, She has spoken at at, at a TED Talk speaker uh, at at the Social Good Summit and many other incredible forums around the world. Uh, A must follow on Twitter at A-N-N-M-E-I. Welcome Anne to Disrupt TV. Hey,
3: thanks so much for having me.
0: So what is your time for the four mile, uh, for the mile?
3: (laughs) I think I'm like at least double his time. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually,
0: eight minute mile is pretty good. That's awesome. (laughs) I can probably pull that off. Oh awesome oh very good
1: <laughs> that's a pretty good mile. <laughs> so,
0: hey, you I, I, I'm actually ashamed to say my time so go ahead, go ahead with the- I, don't know, I
1: just run through airports these days so I, I have no <laughs> idea so but uh, but hey you know you've done a lot of stuff and a lot of interesting stuff I mean both in the technology field I mean you're one of the examples of tech for good going back to the public sector um, really trying to figure out what was going. Uh, on to help improve, like, the daily lives of individuals. So what inspired you to make that transition? Because you've hit all the major tech players, right? You've actually had a chance to actually take Silicon Valley innovations and, and figure out, you know, where they can go. What drove you to do that?
3: Well, you know, working in tech is very heady and very exciting and very challenging, and I personally loved it. Uh, But through my time working in the tech industry, I always felt this tug that I wanted to do something more meaningful, that you wanted to do something to contribute more to the world. And, you know, early in my career, in my mid-20s, I heard of a woman named Elizabeth Birch, who was an executive at Apple, and she one day announced she was quitting her job and moving to D.C. to run a large nonprofit called the Human Rights Campaign. And it kind of stopped me in my tracks and thought, wow, that's really interesting. And, you know, soon I thought, you know, I'd like to do something like that. You know, when I get to the middle of my career, like spend, you know, half my career really, um, you know, doing what I can in the tech sector, learning a lot, contributing what I can. Um, but then, you know, send, spend the second half of my career trying to do something to give back to the world and, and you know, make the world a better place, if you will. And, you know, I had no idea what that would look like at the time, because it was still like 20 years off. Um, but about seven years ago, I decided to take the plunge and make that pivot. Um, and, uh, you know, then I had to figure out like, what am I going to do? And as I looked at the problems around the world that I really cared about, the one that stood out to me was global poverty, um, because it seemed like it was at the root of so many of the issues that that are plaguing our planet.
0: So, so um, you're, you're, you're 20 years in Silicon Valley, which it looks like you've started when you were 10, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, and you detect that there is a pattern and approach towards innovation and growing companies, obviously at Google and Apple and Intuit, all incredible success stories. So did you at some point feel like the approach that Silicon Valley takes towards growth and innovation can somehow be leveraged to accelerate social impact? I mean, is that what triggered the pivot?
3: You know, when I first started my pivot, I had no idea where it would lead me. I wasn't actually sure at all of what I could contribute. Um, uh, so I started out by really learning. I started at the State Department, really just, you know, talked to a lot of people, both in, in government and outside of government, through all the partners that came through, to try to understand what the challenges were and what, what was being done. Um, and as I started to dig in, what I what I recognize is, one, they're just such amazing people who are so dedicated, so passionate, but such good intentions. Um, And yet, if I looked at the bigger picture, it seemed like we just weren't making enough headway on the problems that plague our society. And, you know, and having come from Silicon Valley, this crazy place where we think that, you know, what's cutting edge today is going to be obsolete next year, I was used to this incredible pace of progress and incredible um, innovation. And I thought, hey, you know, if we could bring just a piece of that to the challenges we're trying to tackle around the world, we can do an awful lot more. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people are starting to recognize that, that we just need to make more progress because the world is changing faster and faster. Um, But as a result, I think there's been all this buzz about innovation, but too much of the focus has been on just like coming up with new flashy ideas. Mm -hmm. My own experience of innovation in Silicon Valley is that it's not so sexy. It's that long, hard slog that it takes to continually test fail, iterate, and test again, and try over and over again to take something that's a germ of a good idea and bring it to really meaningful impact in the world. I mean, if you think of a company like Google that's considered to be among the most innovative on the planet, Google didn't actually invent search. You know, there was, you know, if you're old enough, you remember like, you know, AltaVista and InfoSeek and Excite and those guys, like Google didn't invent search, but what they did was they you know, kind of continue to test and iterate and improve on the user interface, the feature set, the algorithms to make their solution so much better than their competitors.
0: Sure.
3: So what's, why should we settle for anything less when it comes to social impact? Wow.
0: Right. So and what's also interesting seeing Silicon yep. Valley, for example, debate how to invest in improving, uh, you know, uh, and have a social impact. Certainly what was happening in San Francisco area in the last few weeks in terms of how we would help the homeless situation there, you see Silicon Valley titans debating about what's the better method. But the good news is people are talking about it, and there's awareness, and and uh, it's 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 surfacing as, as, as something that you know folks that are not familiar with the situation are starting to think about. So. You know,
1: and. You know, and, and what you're talking about, especially in the uh, nonprofit sector um, it's and in public sector, one of those areas has really been, you know, efficacy of donation dollars, right? People spend most of their time raising money, trying to get something up, the ground, yeah. trying to get people around it. And, and there you are reading this book around the Lean Startup. Thinking through these challenges. Tell us about that. Tell us how that got you to actually think about how do we get to lean impact? Because I think those two, I mean, you know, all the innovations we're seeing are really happening at the edges when we put different disciplines together and mash them up. And that's what it looked like when I was reading through the book. I was like, wow. I mean, this is something really powerful um, for a whole sector that's never really thought about a problem this
3: way. Yeah, I I agree. You know, having sort of spent now some time in the private sector in government and at a nonprofit, it is like the magic really happens at the intersection of these sectors. And we can all learn from each other. I think Silicon Valley can learn something from the nonprofit sector as well in terms of how to be more responsible in the world. Um, But I think the nonprofit sector can learn from Silicon Valley too, and government can learn from Silicon Valley too in terms of some of these best practices for innovation. And Eric's book, Eric Ries's book that came out about seven years ago, The Lean Startup, I think did a great job of capturing just you know in a very accessible way how innovation really happens and demystifying it and he talks about the lean startup as you know a, a tool to you know, a methodology for building products and and services under conditions of extreme uncertainty. And that's true certainly for tech startups that are trying to invent things no one's done before, but I think it's also true for the social sector where we're just trying to solve long-standing intractable challenges that don't have good enough solutions that people have been trying to tackle for a long time and in very complex environments. And so, you know, what more uncertainty can you get there? Uh, and, and I think the important thing for us to recognize is that you need a different approach if you're trying to deliver on something that you understand how to solve. And if you're trying to solve a problem that you still don't have the right solution for. Because um, mm-hmm. if you're just trying, if you know the solution and you know it's going to work, then what you want is predictable execution. But if you have a problem and you just don't have something that's sufficient, what you want is to accelerate your pace of learning. And that's kind of what lean startup is about like we can't expect to operate with the predictability of a utility company and drive transformative change so you know but the the reality is that innovating in in the the social space is much harder than innovating for a tech startup right you're not just talking about like trying to optimize your e-commerce transactions or something like that you're talking about real lives and you know much more complex dynamics and dealing with funders and so forth and so the reason that I wrote Lean Impact is to really take these best practices that we've, we've seen work in business, we've seen work around the world, and look at how can we adapt them to work within the much more complex environments that we work in for social good.
0: Sure. I don't know if it was your TEDx talk or, but I remember you said, you know, think big but start small. And I think my favorite line in, in, in the video that I saw of you, you said, Audacious goals lead to innovation. Yeah. And, uh, so what's missing from the traditional social sector approach of designing, social, uh, designing solutions or executing a plan? Is it the audacious goal or, or what's missing?
3: Yeah, so the three principles I talk about in the book came from my interviews with over 200 organizations who are sort of best in class. And, and I came up and I sort of from them distilled down three principles. Think big, start small, and just relentlessly seek impact. They may sound simple, but they don't happen often enough. I mean, when you talk about thinking big, it's that, that big audacious goal. If you look at most of the social sector, we tend to plan based on constraints. You know, The constraints of we have this many dollars, this many people, this size mm-hmm. and scope of a grant, what can we do with this, these resources we have? Mm-hmm. Usually they're far from sufficient to the problems at hand. So instead, I wanna flip that on its head and say, let's plan for the need. You know, what is the need in the world? What will really move the needle? We may not know how to get there anymore, but that's where innovation techniques come in. That's where we then start small um, because then we start, need to start experimenting and figure out what is gonna work. And, um, and by starting small, we can run much faster experiments, much more cheaply and learn um, faster and get to the best solution that way. Okay. And then relentlessly seek sleep impact is really like, how do you get from that small to the big, right? It's like keeping our eye on the prize and making the hard choices to day by day, keep focusing on what's the um, ultimate aim we have to make a difference and just relentlessly, you know, go through this long slog to get there.
0: And wow. it's it with the question of just simply asking, did, did it work, right? I mean, yeah. I
3: mean too often we don't ask that question you know it, it's it's funny we think that you know of course you know if we're trying to seek impact then of course we're going to ask the question does it work there's so many organizations that can't really answer that question definitively and i think that you know it's not enough for us to be doing good by directing our efforts towards an important problem, we have a responsibility to make sure it works. And, and we have to ask that question. We have to test and get data to show if it's working. And not only do we have to show it's working at all, I think that we have to optimize so it can work as much as, as um, to the best extent possible to maximize the, the bang for buck we're delivering. Wow.
1: No, you make a good point, right? In the nonprofit world, there are a lot of vanity metrics, you know, number of lives touched, right? And Uh all these things that sound really great, but really have no impact. Um, How can people differentiate between those vanity metrics and innovation metrics to measure social impact success?
3: Yeah, so vanity metrics is a term that Eric coined in the lean startup that he talks about these kind of absolute numbers that sound good. You know, you look at nonprofit websites, they all have like the number of people they've touched or served. Um, <laughs> so it sounds great, but, but. It's meaningless. Like, what does it mean that you touched or served these people? Did you actually improve their lives? You know, do you know if you improved their lives? And and even if you did, did you get as much, you know, could somebody else with those same resources have done more? Could they have made a bigger impact or reach more people? Um, you know, we don't often know the answers to those questions. And I think we need to start asking those. And that's where in, innovation metrics come in, that these are the unit level metrics that we ask for every person you serve, or every hundred people you serve, what is the um, success rate, what is the engagement rate, the adoption rate, and what is the unit cost? And when we start optimizing those metrics, you can imagine they play dividends over time, that if you, you know, go from 50% success rate to 90% success rate, you're going to make a much more difference for each person that you reach. And those are the kind of metrics that we need to focus on. And unfortunately, um, you know, both funders and um, you know, the mission-driven organizations often don't know the answer to those.
0: Sure, sure. You talk about improving how you innovate uh, for social good by having a mindset where you love the problem, not your solution. Can you expand on that a little bit? Because I think that's applicable to everything that we do. Yes,
3: it is. I, I think it is applicable and, and, and you know, it's applicable in the tech sector as well. It's, you know, we have a natural human tendency to fall in love with our own creations, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, so, and I think it's even more so in the social sector because it's not only is it our own creation, but we also have to, um, it, it, it's the thing, you know, we, we've seen it do good in the world. You know, usually if we're trying, you know, we have some solution, we've seen somebody benefit from it. And so we become emotionally attached to, you know, trying to do more, trying to get that buzz again of, of having helped someone. It's also the thing that we're always pitching to funders or putting on our websites, the thing that we get known for. Um, and so it's very hard to let go of the solution, but the reality is that if we really care about making impact, Sometimes our solution is not the best one. I've seen a lot of nonprofits are saying, we have the best solution to the same problem, and they can't all be right. Um, And so we have to start asking the harder question of, is this really the thing that gets the most bang for the buck? If not, should I be working with that nonprofit down the street or across the country because they might have a better solution? Or should I be working with a company that has a better solution? Or should I be partnering or merging with another organization or using a different type of technology? Um, so I think being humble and holding on to our solutions lightly is going to lead us much um, more quickly to figuring out what's going to make the biggest difference
0: so now
1: you're going around the world sharing this innovation playbook right and organizations have probably tested it out looked around you know learned something tell us about the iterative feedback from this like what would you write differently now that people are using it they've got the handbook in their hands and they're saying but wait what about where where do they usually start with
3: well you know the book's only been out for a week so i haven't had a lot of people finish reading it and say but wait Mm -hmm. um so you know I, 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 I,
1: but, but you've used this technique in, in a lot of places, right? From, you know, helping people get access to internet, to global development lab, to other places. I mean, this is stuff you've been doing for a long time. So
3: Yeah, yeah, and and what I tried to do is both capture my own experiences and the experiences of some of the top organizations around the planet um, and, and what's worked for them. And, and, you know, the reason that I did that is because it's hard to change because the way the system works, so many incentives encourage us to just continue executing on our plans. And so, you know, I wrote the book with the hopes of starting a movement so that whether you're a nonprofit a benefit corporation, a social enterprise, a foundation, an impact investor, or a government—if you're trying to really make a difference in the world, let's just have some few basic facts straight in terms of, you know, how do you really go about um, making the biggest difference possible? You know, Eric's book has become a bible in Silicon Valley, where you know a startup company isn't testing and iterating. People look at them funny, and we should look at organizations funny in the social impact space if they're they're not doing the same.
2: Sure. Have you
1: gotten and have you gotten donors to actually embrace this approach and and use that as a way to get people to adopt it yet? Yeah.
3: You know, uh, when I was at USAID, this was, I was leading something called the Global Development Lab. Um, and, and USAID is, what, for people who don't know, is our uh, U.S. government's uh, foreign aid agency. And we're lar- one of the largest funders in the world. And because we're in government, we're very conservative also. But within the lab, we were able to experiment with a lot of different funding, uh, innovative funding approaches, um, including sort of a tiered funding model in our development innovations program that was uh, modeled after VCs. For we have lot placed lots of small bets. And then double down on the ones that really work. And so it allowed us to take a lot more risks and and be a lot more experimental. Now, we also worked with blended financing to come together with impact investors to try to um, blend our financing and reach uh, markets that might not be reached otherwise. Um, We also did things with outcomes based funding to really reward organizations for the results they delivered rather than the activities they performed. So there's a lot of great organizations that are experimenting with these spaces that we partnered with that i know of otherwise um, and so there is a real movement there um, and uh, and i think we're starting to see real results we just need to do more of it
0: absolutely absolutely um, my company founder almost 20 years ago started the one 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 initiative one percent of time profit and 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 product donations what advice do you give other than other than the number one advice read uh, uh, lean in Read the book. <laughs> what Read the book. Buy the book. Yeah. What advice would you give to CEOs who really want to do good and they realize that, you know, their company brand is more than just the product and service they provide. It's how they improve the state of society as a whole.
3: Yeah. You know, the, the number one thing I would say is be as rigorous about your impact as you are about your profits. You know, companies are set up to maximize shareholder value or maximize profits. And they have the metrics and they have the rigor to do that every day and make decisions towards that end every day. Um, But a lot of companies, even though they have very good intentions, when it comes to their social impact, they're they're too easily satisfied. I think we need to raise the bar. We need to go from being satisfied with doing some good to also expecting any mission-driven organization to maximize the good that they do. Um, and, And that means, you know, taking the same rigorous approaches that we do to profits and applying them to impact.
0: That's great advice.
1: That's great. Wow. We are here with Anne May Chang, Silicon Valley expert, now social good entrepreneur, and more importantly, the the person behind this innovation playbook to radically create greater social good. Read Lean Impact available in bookstores everywhere um, published by Wiley. You can follow her on Twitter at Anne May, A-N-N-M-E-I. Thank you so much for being on the show.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Have a great weekend.
0: Happy Friday. Thank you. Wow, (laughs) That's just, you know, this is why Fridays are uh, our favorite time of the week. Uh, We get to uh, speak to Olympians and authors, and speaking of author and amazing person, this is, uh, this is the, of course, coming from Red Sox world champions, uh, this is the cleanup hitter spot, where we have a first ballot disruptivity hall of famer Returning back to the show, it's our privilege to have Heather Clancy, Editorial Director of Green Biz Group, uh, an award-winning business journalist specializing in coverage of uh, transformational technology and translating kind of, you know, tech-speak to business benefits. Talk about talking about impact and results. This is a great segue talking to Heather. Heather's articles have appeared in Entrepreneur, Fortune, Herald Tribune, New York Times, and many other media publications. She is a co-author of also a new book that came out this year uh, called "Niche Down: How to Become Legendary by Being Different," and you can follow Heather on Twitter. You an amazing follow at Green Tech Lady. G R E N T E C H L A D Y. Welcome back, Heather, to the Shrub TV.
4: Thank you. It is so always so embarrassing listening to you guys to the bio, but thank you. Hey, I just FYI just tweeted out an excerpt from. Um, and may 's book, uh, so just she was uh, excerpted on my site uh, last weekend so uh, or two weekends ago but uh, anyway she 's tremendous um, tremendous background and I, I fun fact of the moment, uh, as I was sitting here listening to that interview um, i, I don 't know if you know this, but Nancy fund, uh, you know of, of DBL, um, you know great social um, social investor, if you will, started her career at Sierra Club.
1: Wow. Don't
4: know if you knew that, but um, anyway, know, that he was very skeptical of the corporate world's ability to to do good in the world and that that view is really 180, right? Over the last, I don't know, 5 yeah.
1: to 10 years. So,
4: just FYI.
1: Are you you mean, mean, how's the book doing? How's how's town doing?
4: Oh, the book is fine. It's just I I I just uh, I've been kind of busy with my own things, but Christopher's out there. He's he just did a huge signing. Uh, about uh, a week ago and, and had to stay extra 20 minutes because he was so much in demand. And he's the, he's got the uh, the charisma, the in-person charisma, um, but it's going well. I mean, and I think the the questions I've had, it's so funny because I have people that um, say to me, hey, I, I got got my book for my kid just because they're thinking about their career. And, and I never really thought about that when we were writing it, but it's true. I mean, you know, it's a very basic book. I mean, I'll just say, I mean, it's not meant to be like, it's not five you know 600 pages of of business case studies and strategies and so forth but it it really does just kind of jolt you and make you think um in different ways and i i love that some of my friends have actually bought it for their (laughs) kids like wow okay
0: are you going to share your uh one mile time Uh,
4: i have absolutely (laughs) no clue i don't run um i i used to run and look like an
0: athlete you look like an athlete
4: so you know it's funny i'm i'm into boot camps where people like beat me up and make me do burpees and crazy things like that so i i kind of try to do that and, and yoga yeah. yoga too so i'm not a runner um i used to sprint but not long distance so
0: sure sure so what 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 is top of mind what are some of the some of the things that uh you know that you've been researching and writing about
4: <laughs> this week to be quite honest this week has been Uh, you mentioned human rights a couple times, and I I was sitting at a conference on uh, sustainability, right? So that's obviously what I cover mainly. And many of the the corporate sustainability um, programs out there have been obviously very focused on environmental resources, right? So water, and how do you deal with less waste, and energy, and so forth, reduction, and very physical, sort of tangential kind, you know, tangible things. And what, what um, is really happening now is that the, the, the sustainability teams out there are beginning to you know, realize that they need to be thinking a whole lot more about the people um, and the human, the sustainable um, condition, the conditions that, that are, their supply chains are creating, for example. I mean, right. huge. Um, it's not just the, the physical footprint out in China. It's how are those people being treated if you're going into a new market. What socioeconomic factors, you know, where, which community will benefit the most from your, from your investment, not, you know, be less harmed by, by your investments in an in operations, in operations. Um, I was, and quite, quite honestly, I was a little horrified. Um, you know, what kind of made me even start along this, this train of thought was that, um, uh, I, I the, the Marriott strikes that are going mm-hmm. on right now around yeah. the, um, the country mm-hmm. at their hotels, mm-hmm. um, my, conference, my company's conference was very impacted by that. Um, In Oakland, California, um, the workers are on strike at the the Marriott there in the convention center. And the union just this week uh, sent out a communique basically pointing to the Marriott sustainability program as a uh, as detrimental to labor conditions and and yeah. they had this whole sort of argument about why it was um so so even though these are meant to be good, you know mm-hmm. the sort of unintended consequences and so i i i i think um so what that's one of the things i 'm studying right now is is the the unintended consequences, and how can we think about sustaining humans and 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 not just the the planet around us so it seems mm-hmm. kind of like. Like no brainer. Like, why wouldn't you be thinking about? It? But, but you know, people just haven't. It, it's the unconscious bias thing. Like, it's not that people are trying to do harm. It's just that they haven't thought about it.
1: it just I hasn't. Mean, there's, done. A of, there's a lot of like these, these unintended consequences, right? I, know. I mean, in your case with the Marriott, right? It's it's basically you know by not having people change the sheets, they're doing some good by saving water. But actually, people don't realize that actually impacts because people clean and get paid by the rooms they actually clean by, which which actually creates a very interesting dynamic right? Yeah. It's, it's the same thing with autonomous vehicles, right? Autonomous vehicles are, right. are going to reduce crashes and injuries, and that's great, but, you know, we're going to be short 400,000 organ donations, so <laughs> it's a very, you know, it's like oh, things people don't think about, so it's like, <laughs> like, hey, I was just throwing it out there. <laughs>
4: well, and then, okay, and so here's another thing you asked about things I'm thinking about, the electric scooter um, movement, right? Yeah, uh, that's broken what happened mm-hmm. with that? Well, so, I mean, I just noticed um, Ford this week bought one of the companies out there, mm-hmm. which um, i don't I haven't seen another of the automakers buy them, but this court obviously um, the last mile um, scooters are all over the place. You go to cities like I was in Cleveland in August, and there were there were people all, all over the place riding the scooters. Um, and then of course the same weekend I was there, there was a a, a fatality um, because people are are not you know there's there's more of these things all over the city streets, and there's no like oh my gosh all of a sudden you know you've got someone turning into you. Um, but anyway, that was just an interesting uh, development this week, sort of in the, in the noise of everything else going on in this world, uh, Ford, and they didn't disclose the, uh, the value, the value of the deal, but it was, you know, like the, the estimates are, I don't know, 80 to 90 million. So, so that for me was like kind of an aha, you know, this, this last mile thing has legs, if you were, you know, pun intended. Um, but, you know, so that was one thing that caught my eye this week.
1: You yeah, wrote, no, it's actually interesting. Oh, go ahead. Oh,
0: sorry. You also wrote about corporate venture funds uh, shaping clean energy oh. innovation, and you listed some big companies and how the, the CVCs there are really focused. Do you think that they will now, given what we talked about with Marriott and others, that they will have uh, a deeper due diligence in terms of companies they invest in that may uh, potentially have impact uh, in, ter- in, in terms of the, you know, the employees or the, or the perception of the brand? How much of that will be top of mind moving forward?
4: So, it, if you look at the um, the numbers, so environmental, social, and governance factors, right? I, um, with the, the the Larry Fink letter that came out earlier this year, Blackrock, BlackRock saying, you know, my fund will look at this, and right. I think. Generally speaking, about I think the estimate is like a quarter of the the funds are now starting to consider those factors, so they're starting to demand that information. So that's that's great progress. It's it's by no means everyone, but I think that over time you will see um, a, a greater focus on this, and and it's just a matter of of really jolting some. I mean, it's just again, it's not it's not that no one it, that people are thinking about bad things. You know, they're not trying to intentionally do this, but they're they're just haven't thought about the other factor yet. Um, and as you get the, if you get more CEOs talking about it and, and demanding it, right, not just saying, do this, but hey, hey, think about this, or it will affect your compensation. <gasps> oh, my gosh, you know, I mean, that makes people change things. I mean, you hate, mm-hmm. I hate to say it, but that money talks. And um, mm-hmm. if you, if you look at some of the, the big companies out there, and and how they're starting to um, you know, basically compensate their executives. That will make the difference. That's that's the thing to watch. I I believe.
1: Right. You know, you're also talking about really how organizations are finally getting to um, in the energy independence in their own plants. Um, you talked about Taylor Farms this week. Uh, a little bit about how that works, right? I mean, because it's like a solar, you got cogen, you got. I mean, I don't know if they're doing like methane capture. I mean, it's crazy stuff.
4: So they're not doing methane capture. However, and, and so this is one of those things that it's for the people who haven't read that story. Um, it, Taylor Farms has, um, indeed a sort of hybrid microgrid. Uh, so it includes, uh, includes the solar and the wind. And they, the most recent investment was this natural gas cogen um, from a company called Concentric Power. And, you know, I think, okay, natural gas. So natural gas, um, uh, from the grid, if you will, has, been, has come under sort of scrut- more scrutiny in the past six months because of the methane issue. Methane, and, oh, yeah. and, and this is the whole, um, they, they, the, the term is super pollutants, right? So everyone knows, everyone hears all the time about carbon dioxide emissions. You have to mm. reduce your carbon dioxide emissions and so forth. Um, as the natural gas comes into play on the grid. The issue has been the methane leaks. So from both a, a production standpoint, the fracking and so forth and what's released there. And am I boring you, Ray? <laughs> no, <laughs> but no, 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 no. wake up. But yeah, wake yeah. up to the issue um, of super pollutants, which is that there's all these other sort of things, especially associated with the natural gas infrastructure, that are um, they don't linger as long, but when they get when they hit the atmosphere, they're they're as a forcer of of heat, right. they're they're much more intense. And so you
1: you get that with the cows, right? I mean, all the cows and all the production, right? Those are our biggest sources of greenhouse gases today, right?
4: Well, agriculture is, I mean, it's, it's, it's it's, it's the, if you look at Brazil, for example, I mean, what's happening there is that the, the company, the country is converting to agriculture and they're, they're cutting down trees in order to do that. So, and they're not changing their practices in the soil to, to capture and so forth. But you know, the long story short on the on the cogen investment at for Taylor Farms is kind. Of, I was when I got this sort of you know when I first heard about, it, I was like, yeah,
3: natural gas.
4: But I mean, the fact is, okay, there the technology they are using is hundreds of times more efficient than what's off the grid, right. and so um, it, it's it's not it's not uh, emitting as much, and so as a as an efficiency measure, it's it's much better. So it's kind of like this. Don't let you know, perfect, right. you know, the, the need to be perfect get in the way of progress. And so right. anyway, so they, they've taken themselves off the grid using this combination of technologies.
0: I read um, a World Economic Forum uh, post that came out, I think, last week. It was a prediction about uh, one of the reasons countries will go to war in the near future will be because wow. of water. Water will be the reason countries will go to war. And you wrote a post that said, if you continue to treat water as a disposable, consumable resource, a global crisis is imminent. And it was about circular water and the digital transformation. Can you talk a little bit about that?
4: <laughs> you're, boy, you're going after everything I did in the last two weeks. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: so
4: So that actually, that, that piece, that video that you're referring to. Yeah. Was, uh, the Verge conference that my com- my company ran a couple, a few weeks back in Oakland, the one I just referenced. Um, and the issue is, uh, let's, let's actually Intel is a great example of a company that has focused for many, 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 many years on making sure that water was um, part of the, part of, part of the considerations where they put their um, plants. So in Arizona where water is is, is in short supply, they've, they've gone in and invested in, in, um, in basically circular systems that, that put it back and use, use it more times, clean it, um, and don't basically um, draw as much on the, on the system, on the aquifer as, as, uh, as other technologies do. And more companies are starting to think this way because, you know, if you go to, especially if you go to a place where water's in short supply, um, and you yeah. have to, and if they don't put these technologies in place at the beginning, and allow people to measure what's happening uh, as, as in, in the example of agricultural um, concern. They can't, uh, the, the water won't be there in the future. Uh, and and you, you, it's not just country, it's countries going to war, also states, right? So this is happening out in, in Colorado and, and so forth where, where the water, you know, where people have are, have been drawing on these aquifers forever and ever. And, and now they really need to think about the, the diversion and these, these res- Reservoirs are not there anymore. So, yeah,
1: that's a great point. Now, now the other hot thing was like uh, we've been seeing these conversations around smart dust. Right. <laughs> what, what what is smart dust? Right. Smart dust. Is this like the edge of edge computing at the particle level?
4: Well, so smart dust isn't really dust. It's like sensors and different in different yeah. items, right? But um, the the piece that you're referring to, because I, I was reading, uh, it's by Christopher Mims over at yes. the Wall Street Journal. Oh. The Wall Street Journal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He did a great. He did it. You know, it's just really the the need, right, to have better. Um, to have better energy sources for all of these sensors and so forth that we're putting place. We talk about the internet of things and the internet of of smart things and the internet of this and the internet of that and and, and whatever, putting, putting sensors virtually everywhere. And obviously, you can't put batteries virtually everywhere. I mean, the conditions wow. of different geographic regions and, and heat and water and so forth. And I, so this particular piece, which I, I encourage others to read, is just Make, making you talk about and think about what happens in a world of untethered sensors right so where does, the, where,
1: does the come
4: from? where does the energy come from and one of the things that i thought was fascinating was the idea of the heat right because heat is an energy source when we talk about energy reduction it's not just electricity it's it's how do you handle thermal um needs in a different way so that that was to me you know an aha like oh you know you're by, by becoming warmer, you could be powering something in, in your clothing or whatever. So anyway, so the smart, you know, the idea is that, that we need to find better energy sources and we all know this I and mean, the batteries are, I mean, we, the, what do you do wherever you are on the road, you're looking for this, this power source. And um, so it's just, a, it's, a, it's a really thought, it's a thoughtful piece on, on where the innovation is coming from.
1: So.
0: You know, if 2017 in, in my industry was the era of AI, and 2018 year of blockchain, just based on conversations and content and, you know, topics at Davos and other places. What, what do you think will be the, you know, the, what we're going to talk about with you a year from today as we talk about 2019 and sustainability? <laughs> what's, the, what's the topic, what are your predictions about next year's? hot button items?
4: I think the year, uh, the next year, um, if you talk about a new technology specifically, uh, 2019 will be the year of carbon removal wow. technologies, I think. Um, and partly because the, um, the intergovernmental panel on climate change that came out um, about a month ago now with their, their basic, you know, it's not enough just to reduce what we're putting in the air. We have to get better about taking what's out there, taking what's out of our atmosphere already. So that would, it, I believe, and and we're starting to go to back to to the corporate venture fund story. If you look at that one, that's where all of the the oil and gas players on that list are putting their money, right? And so that's where the carbon
1: capture technology, right? It like, absolutely able to bring has it in, absorb it, scrub it. Mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you, and you've started to see some companies like Climeworks, which is kind of they, they're putting these various little. Um, uh, systems into place and, and tech you know they're kind of testing right now but i actually think that there's more of an opportunity at the industrial level so it's not necessarily going to be like a big a big um you know plant that's going to be somewhere in the world that's sucking it out. it's, it's going to be companies investing in it at the industrial level and embedding it maybe in things so like concrete you see a lot happening in the concrete inter- industry hugely carbon intensive industry how uh, and there's a lot of players now that are looking at how you take carbon yeah. and use it essentially as a building material and bed it into the concrete and yeah. make that process just a whole lot more efficient and at the same time, you know, help reduce what's, what's out in the atmosphere. Awesome. So that, that would be my gut.
0: Oh, very cool. I hope you're right. I
4: think you're- <laughs> yeah, Wouldn't it be cool? I mean, it's kind of one of <laughs> yeah. these things that's been talked about forever. Yeah. Carbon <laughs> capture and storage, woo! You know, you just but it, it's much at the more discreet level, in my opinion.
1: Uh, wow well we're here with Heather Clancy editorial director at Green biz group and co-author of Nish down with Chris Lockhead you can follow her at Twitter at green tech lady for all the latest news about sustainability social responsibility but more importantly making this world a better place thanks a lot for being on the show Heather
0: you were great Thank you Heather so 20, maybe we'll see you the summertime. 20, one of the bright one of my favorite guests uh, I learned so much from from Heather it's uh it's we, should, we, we we try to get here as get her here as often as we can. So we're we're just grateful that she makes time to to educate us.
1: Great. Wow, we are coming up on show one twenty nine. One
0: twenty nine.
1: We and have probably over three hundred guests, right?
0: Yes, we have Cindy Juice, Chief Marketing Officer at Level Access. Nicole France, VP, Principal Analyst and Constellation Research, and a surprise guest that we'll reveal next week. But uh, you know, please tune in same time, uh, two p.m. Eastern. 11 Pacific uh, next week on Disrupt. Ray closing remarks. I know hey. you you know a big big conference ahead of ahead of all of us and I look forward to being there, uh, tweeting away from some of the greatest pioneers of the internet age.
1: Tim Berners-Lee, Vince Surf, uh, we've got the United Nations, we've got the World Economic Forum, and we've got IEEE all gathered in one big location talking about the future of the internet. And human rights in a digital age it's december 10th check it out on the constellation website and of course it'll be live streamed globally so hey thanks a lot everyone and have an awesome week there will be no show for thanksgiving uh there's a show next week uh, and then two shows after that for 2018 so if you want to get on the calendar for 2019 reach out to aubrey our awesome producer so have a great friday <laughs>